Hello, and welcome to a series of special podcasts from the Hoover Institution's Working Group on Foreign Policy and Grand Strategy. Our topic, Failed States. Our guest, James Fearon, Professor of Political Science and a Senior Fellow in the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford. James, thanks for joining us. Thank you. All right. So a lot of the conversations that uh, we've had in this series have included a discussion of what constitutes a failed state. So just starting with the basics, let's talk about that in concrete terms. When we look around the world today, uh, which countries would you consider legitimate examples of failed states? Well, there's different ways you could uh, um, you could define a failed state, and it's not like I guess there's one true way. The way that I like to think about it, I think it's most productive, is uh, a failed state is one that that doesn't control some large part of its or you know some significant part of its own territory in terms of its, its lost control to. Um, could be you know local it could be an insurgency it could be kind of local mafias bandits uh, it just fails to control to provide basic public order in some significant chunk of its territory and if you have uh, uh, you know in the worst case uh, it's it's most extreme and clear when the central government you know disintegrates in the in the capital city that's truly a failed state right um, where you know say militias have divided up the the capital. And if you take a definition like that, you know, it would be states such as uh, Syria, not that it's lost the capital, but has uh, the Assad regime has lost control of large parts of the country. Likewise, Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, Libya, uh, Somalia would be cases where the center has actually dis- disintegrated. Yemen, pretty close to that. Uh, Central African Republic, still large parts of it. Democratic Republic of Congo, uh, South Sudan in the midst of a civil war where the central state has lost control of large chunks of the, the country, uh, arguably, you know, pretty significant chunk of Nigeria, um, Pakistan, some smaller chunk. Um, this is a little different from another approach which tries to, say, uh, equate the failed state with some kind of much broader measure of uh, provision of public goods. Uh, and you can do that too, but then it's basically kind of like a ranking of some some kind of notion of state performance overall. I prefer to I think analytically it's better to restrict things to you know this kind of basic core function of public order. And you mentioned in your piece that a lot of the failed states that we've seen in recent history, as you mentioned in that list as well, have have been in Africa, um, and an awful lot of them don't have at least obvious implications, direct implications. For American national security, so looking looking around the globe, which of these states should worry us? What are the places where a it's plausible that they could fail in the not too distant future, or are in the process of failing, and b where it could have significant implications for the United States? Uh, right. So so most of the um, uh, until fairly recently, a lot of the state failure, according to this you know notion of kind of loss of basic control over kind of public order, was happening in in, in Africa and a couple other places. Uh, but it was mainly places that that uh, you know the the failure of say Liberia or Sierra Leone or DRC for that matter posed no direct uh, kind of traditional national security threats to the U.S. And they're you know horrible from a, often horrible from a humanitarian perspective, and we have some you know interests and, and moral concerns, but in terms of kind of you know a national security threat, nothing really or hardly anything. Right. Um, but in this kind of I don't know last five years since the Arab Spring, we've seen a spread of uh, of state failure essentially to a region 
that does potentially uh, where where state failure poses um, uh, potentially greater, more traditional national security threats. Well, or or well, modern security uh, threats, but it's security threats in the sense of uh, you know risks of of uh, violence for uh, against uh, uh, the U.S. or its allies, and that's uh, countries in the, in the heart of the Middle East or throughout the. Uh, the Middle East region. And it's not so much the countries that have, that are, I'd say, currently in failure, like in particular Iraq and Syria, um, uh, but it really it's the danger that the collapse of these states will, uh, will see, you know, a spread or contagion uh, to other states of the region that do um, uh, pose uh, more, uh, whose, whose failure would pose uh, bigger threats, such as, say, Pakistan or Further down the line, you know, maybe Jordan or Saudi Arabia, things like that, places like that. Outside of that region, you also talk in your piece about North Korea, and um, there's an interesting excerpt there that I want to I want to get you to expand on for our audience. You say that, um, quoting you here, in the case of North Korea, the regime is sure to dissolve before long. How chaotically we can't say. End quote. It feels like we've been hearing that about North Korea for, for a long time. <laughs> yeah. So what, what leaves you this confident that the regime in Pyongyang's days are, are numbered? Uh, well, okay. So forecasting is uh, in, in this area, you know, it's worse than the weather, right? And uh, <laughs> right. Right. Um, so, yeah, so I can't, uh, I wouldn't put, uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't stake all my savings on on the North Korean regime collapsing in the next five years. But you know, I think it's. I think it's. There's a, a reasonably good chance. I. I certainly can't see the Kim dynasty. You know, uh, ruling for a very long time. You know, decades and decades. Um, I would be astonished if that were the case. So I do think that we'll see regime change in North Korea um, uh, sooner or later, and. Uh, uh, you know, I think that, you know, any responsible U S uh, government, I'm sure they, you know, the current administration and previous ones have been planning for this for some time has, you know, uh, should be planning for some kind of dissolution of that regime. And then like, like, like I say in the piece, the real question is the interesting question is going to be, uh, and the, the difficult question is how, cha- how chaotic is that going to be? Um, and you know, this is a case where state failure really would pose uh, potentially poses potentially great security threats to us because it's a regime with nuclear weapons, and likewise, you know, Pakistan, uh, a regime with nuclear weapons that you know is not very unlikely to disintegrate tomorrow, but you know has been showing signs and perhaps increasing signs for some time that it could collapse into really pretty uh, you know a center directed civil war that would really uh, where the state would would lose control. The existing state would, would lose substantial control, and that would be a very that would pose a real direct threat or uh, significant threats for the U.S. Right. Uh, there's another provocative statement in your piece that I want you to expand on. You write, quoting you again, the U.S. does not have the capabilities it needs to deal with failed states in the sense of bringing them out of failure, but it's not clear that any third party does. Explain what you mean by that. Um. You know, I think this is uh, this is now uh, abundantly clear from recent and and even longer history that we faced that, that third parties, uh, even very powerful ones like the U.S., are simply not capable of building you know stable political order uh, in 
um, in countries where the state has disintegrated, either because we caused it to disintegrate, as we did in Iraq, um, although it was pretty shaky uh, to begin with, I guess you could say, um, uh, or that disintegrated out of you know many years of civil war. Uh, we are third parties can't really build um, uh, political order uh, on the cheap in the short run. You know, if you're willing to be a colonial power for many decades, hundreds of years, even in some cases, uh, you can do it. But that's that's not something we're going to do. Not an option. Not costs we're willing to pay. Uh, not just not feasible anyway. Um, uh, so, you know, so the only times you can really do it is when you're kind of putting back together a state that was already quite capable, like, you know, say Germany and Japan, um, uh, right after World War II. But otherwise, political order has to be built by locals. Uh, and one of the things I worry about in U.S. foreign policy in the last, well, 15 years, even going back to Vietnam, uh, is that we have this uh, tendency to uh, act in ways that um, are intended to, you know, build political capability in, in weak state uh, allies who we want to uh, make stronger, but our own efforts actually undermine the, uh, the goal. And basically, the more we do, uh, the less those we're trying to, to help build a state do. Um, so Iraq would be a good example where we spent uh, billions of dollars and uh, thousands of, of uh, uh, American lives and tens of thousands of uh, casualties um, trying to build an army that would be capable and it, you know, disintegrates, uh, under hardly any pressure at all from, a you know, a bunch of bandits basically. Um, I mean, slightly more than that, but not much, uh, in the face of, uh, ISIS, uh, last year. Um, and now we're going back to like, you know, oh, it's an absolutely critical interest for us to go back and, and, uh, do this again. Um, uh, you know, I think that, that, that we need to be really careful there not to make the same kind of mistake, which is to resupply the capability, then it doesn't get built by the locals. And you also mentioned in your essay that we are reasonably well equipped to take prophylactic measures to keep states from failing in the first place. But you also know that there's a big potential liability that comes with that. Ex- explain the dynamic that's at work there. What, 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 what do you mean by prophylactic measures, like preventing contagion? preventing states from failing uh, in the first place. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm not so sure about that. I, I, think, uh, um, I think that's what we've got to be trying to do, which is to kind of contain the, um, uh, contain the potential state disintegrating effects of what's going on now in Syria and Iraq uh, and uh, to in, in, in somewhat different ways in Afghanistan and Pakistan. Um, and Libya, uh, that, you know, kind of containment and preventing, you know, a sp- you know, disintegration of yet more states and states that are more critical to the world economy or that, that have or might acquire nuclear weapons um, uh, or are important for, you know, allies and, and our, uh, our other states in the region, uh, we need, that's, that's a central problem. Like, how do we, how do we limit contagion? But, it is a it is a problem that you know for the kind of moral hazard reasons I just mentioned. The more we kind of dump money and arms and so on on them, that doesn't necessarily make them more robust. Um, there's also this problem that the more we do, the more we help, uh, and the more we're seen to be uh, intervening, the more we potentially uh, are helping uh, the Islamic State uh, recruit people who say, "Look, it's these foreigners propping up these." Uh, 
you know, illegitimate uh, regimes who are basically kind of in hoc to the infidels. Um, so I think it's a really tricky problem, uh, um, and I, you know, I, I and, and a subtle one, but yeah, I think that uh, uh, preventing contagion is where where the foreign policy uh, contagion or, or spread of state failure in this region is a important or you know very important foreign policy problem for the U.S. and one that doesn't have the most obvious of answers. One thing I want you to address here, one of the arguments that continually recurs when we're talking about these kinds of states, especially in this part of the world, especially in Africa and the Middle East, is that it's a matter of borders, that all of these states exist under these arbitrary boundaries that were set by outside powers and that if you just redrew the lines, the implication right. there being often – if you more precisely isolate the various you know, ethnic or religious groups, uh, a lot of this would sort itself out. What, what do you make of that argument? Well, it kind of it kind of drives me crazy sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, it it presumes a world in which, like, if we could just draw the borders right, there is there's these like kind of natural groupings out there. And if we it's a, it's a it's a it's an old idea and one that's it's interesting that it's such a it's such a strong idea in America. It uh, you know it, it's very closely associated with Woodrow Wilson and how he how he seemed to be thinking about the problem of. Of uh, building an international order after World War One, Wilsonianism, um, that there are kind of these natural groupings of people. We just get the borders right, and then we won't have international conflict, and we'll have self determination, and so on. Uh, you know, I'm influenced by uh, studying Africa, where um, I, I, you know the 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 idea that the British or the French could have drawn kind of correct lines to make natural states there is is far fetched. Many of the groups that you see today fighting didn't really exist as self-conscious groups prior to the drawing of the lines. It was really the drawing of the lines that gave people incentives to organize in larger categories that we now call the ethnic groups of, you know, Sudan or Kenya. Uh, so so the, the groups that, that, that now exist are often sort of the product of a prior set of line drawing. As soon as you draw a new line, like say you divide South Sudan from, from North Sudan, uh, what happens in South Sudan? Well, it used to be a bunch of like you know so-called you know African Southerners fighting against uh, uh, Arab African or Muslim Northerners. Uh, the you know divisions within or the the South now get uh, militarized, and you have a really nasty civil war, horrible civil war going on in South Sudan. Divide them up, and it'll happen again. So it's really a problem of of building political order and people. Uh, you know you know. You you could go down to such a tiny level that it, w it, w it would not be feasible. Basically, you have to somehow figure out how to have states at some scale uh, that have people with uh, you know with with different uh, you know ethnic or religious uh, affiliations. Um, I'm not sure if that's exactly what you were asking about, but uh, you know, you no, know it it's is. a rant. I, it's a rant I like to go on. <laughs> no, no that's precisely what I was asking. Yeah. So let me close here. The final question, actually, it's a pair of them. Given the events of the past few decades, ones that you've been referring to, what do you think is the the biggest lesson that the United States has learned about nation building? What do you think is the biggest one we've yet to learn? I'd go back to the the moral hazard uh, problem that I was I was mentioning earlier. That kind of the more we do. The less those we are trying to help do our allies and clients and uh, the the groups we're trying to um, uh, support to build better political orders, um, 
I think that's the thing we that that, that we have to we're going to have to learn how to take some risks of bad stuff happening and and you know that that you could have some uh, lousy awful uh, uh, you know state like entity in eastern Syria and, and western Iraq um, that calls itself a caliphate or whatever and uh, that it's it even though this can pose some costs and risks for us. It's better to to let it fail and let it, or 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 have locals in the region cause it to fail. Um, uh, you know, if we want to kill the um, you know the kind of radical uh, extremist is you know Islamic jihad jihadist thinking that is incredibly attractive and amazingly uh, uh, attractive, it seems, for young Muslim men in, in a huge space, um, we're not going to do it by by bombs, just as we didn't really defeat communism by bombs, but by essentially letting it fail on its own, uh, which I think it will. All if, right. You know, given a rope. <laughs> All right. My guest has been... James Furon, professor of political science and a senior fellow in the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford. James, thanks for being with us today. Thank you very much. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.